Good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. Welcome, welcome. Well, you know, there's an old saying, people don't like to know how the sausages are made. <laughs> if you have a bulletin there, it says what the sermon's about. There's a little a synopsis. Uh, that's a lie. That's not what the sermon's about. <laughs> so Friday, you know, I, I, you, you have to make decisions. There's this, especially this material today. This is uh, there was like 18 different sermons I could have could have done. And when it came down to it, where it was going, I did not want to go there. And so what you see written there on Friday was my check down. Uh, the sermon is about. I mean, the sermon could very well have been about that little paragraph. That's what the newsletter is going to be about. But there was something more sinister lingering there. And uh, it wasn't until I just submitted to the fact that that's what this was about yesterday, I couldn't even finish the sermon. It just went on and on and on. You can't type your way out of it, let me tell you. And um, it's just so funny how it works, because the sermon, uh, we're going to cover one, one thing, is the difference between fear and faith, and the fact that fear is the opposite of faith. And, and so um, it, the sermon is called God's Risen Daughter, but... What it ended up being about was very different than what you have there. So if, if you're confused as I get started. <laughs> We're in Mark chapter 5. If you go there with me, we're starting in verse 21. And for the first time here, we were able to do one chapter and two sermons. Like I said, I'm speeding up. This is the very um, popular story, I think a very famous story with all of us. We all know about this. Uh, Jesus is on his way to heal a little girl and gets stopped by a woman um, who touches him and is healed of an illness that she's had for a great number of years. Uh, There's a little interaction there, and then Jesus goes on and raises, I'm going to give away the end. He raises the daughter from death, just in case you didn't know the story. And what is this about? I mean, what is the story about? I could have done a sermon on science and medicine and its failures. It's there in the text, but that's not really what it's ultimately about. I could have done one on just fear and faith, but that's ultimately not what it's about either. So as we open this up and pursue the path that the Lord has planned for us, let us pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your relentless pursuit of us. I pray, Lord God, that... um, that we would share that same relentless pursuit, that we would chase after your son the way that you have chased after us, that we wouldn't just be holy like he is holy, that we wouldn't just love as he has loved, but that we would pursue him in the same way that you have pursued us. You are a model father. You are a model husband. Uh, All uh, husbandry and fatherhood and marriage flow out of who you are. And I pray as we touch on those subjects today that you would give us a deep uh, understanding, that you would convict us and comfort us in exactly the place that we needed. We pray these things in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, I think I've mentioned before what they call a Markin sandwich. The Markin sandwich is that uh, Mark starts telling a story, the story is interrupted, and then uh, there's another story in the middle, and then he goes back to the original story. Now, there's a debate here as to whether this, this section actually qualifies versus 21 through 43. It's a big section. Rather, it actually qualifies as a Mark and Sandwich. Because one of the differences here versus the other ones is that one story actually directly affects the other story. If the lady hasn't, with the hemorrhage, doesn't stop Jesus, he makes it there to Jairus' house uh, before his, the daughter dies. 
right? So what the woman does isn't just this cute little, oh, hey, look, he heals people without even knowing it story that he just sort of slaps in the middle of this thing. The two stories are connected. The two stories are connected. And, and God wants to show that the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel that he is, he is giving to the world, is for everyone. From, from the most respected man in the community to the most disrespected outcast of a woman and everybody in between, including a little girl. Everybody is welcome in this kingdom. And so this isn't a normal Mark and Sandwich. The two stories are, are, are so interconnected that it's, it's just one long story in the end. One story directly affects the other. The other elements within the text not only link the two stories together, but link these two stories to what has come before it and what comes after it. This is what Mark does. He's still talking about the same thing he was talking about at the beginning of chapter 4, which is very similar to what he was talking about mid-chapter 3. Right? What, what happens with this week-to-week preaching, and if we get away from the text a little bit, is we forget how connected all of this stuff is. Jesus restores from death to life, from uncleanness to wholeness. Both of these stories are about daughters, the age of the girl and the length of the woman's uncleanness are both 12 years. 12 is a number that matters. Now, I'm going to pause here. <laughs> because you get into numbers in the Bible and you can get some pretty kooky stuff, right? Like, ooh, did you know that three, John 3.16 is a big big verse, right? You know there's other really um, important verses that are also 3.16? And, and people make a big deal out of this, except, you know, all of that stuff was added in 1348 by a weird French guy who was just sick of being super confused when he read books. Like, you know, we have to come up with some way of systematizing this. So it's an accident when you get that kind of stuff. I mean, if you're not careful, right, you start counting the number of words and this chapter and that chapter, and people start doing all kinds of kooky stuff. Well, when you're translating them into English, but in the Hebrew there's not the same number of words in those chapters, and so you're an idiot. So when I, I'm going to start talking about numerology, I'm going to do it when, when it's important, right? Because otherwise it's, it's pretty off, off there, out there in the wilds. We don't want to go out in the wilds. We want to go to the wilderness, but not the wilds. The, the girl is 12 years old. The woman has been sick for 12 years. Okay, that is not just, an, just some detail there. Because the number 12, I believe we've heard that number somewhere before. Can anybody think of any other 12s that show up in the Bible? Oh, yeah, the number of disciples, the number of tribes in Israel. So when you hear numbers like 12 and 3 and 40, 7, 6, which is half of 12, these numbers tend to mean something. Okay? This story isn't about the little girl, and it's not about the woman, even though their stories are taken up into the grander story of Israel. This is a story about Israel. And it's a story that's been being told since the book of Kings, since the book of Deuteronomy, since the book of Genesis. It's the same story. And this is a very key, important um, moment in the promises and the hopes of Israel. Jesus is going to do something here to reveal what his real plan is all about. He's going to take the lamp and he's going to put it up on a high stool, and those, right up on a pedestal, and those with eyes to see and ears to hear will hear and see something quite amazing. Quite amazing. The other thing, the slightly lesser thing, is the fact that it's two women. It's two women. At the end of this story now, we have three women now who have been healed out of seven. Almost half. And that also is not an accident. 
That is not an accident. He is making a very serious, deadly point of the fact that he keeps healing women. The children of God are being saved. That's what this story declares. The children of God are being saved. They are being delivered. They are being restored to their proper place, not only uh, in, in Israel, but in the world, in the cosmos. And the deliverance doesn't come through obeying the law. The, the means of salvation is faith. Your faith saves you. And the source of both cleanness and life are the person of Jesus Christ himself. The disciples fear the storm. Uh, the disciples fear of the storm and their salvation. The fear of the townspeople is juxtaposed with the faith fear of the unclean woman and Jairus. If you go back, right, what, what were the disciples? What was their response to the story on the boat? They were terrified. The people who saw the demoniac get healed, they're terrified. Now what you have are two more characters who are full of fear. One of them says, right, at one point, the woman with the hemorrhage, it says she is full of fear. The other time he says to Jairus, don't be afraid, have faith. So fear here is going to play out very differently than it has in the last two stories. Now, the next story that's coming is one fascinating. People are also amazed and fearful of who Jesus is, and he can't get anything done because they have no faith. Whereas here, he's going to get quite a lot done because the people do have faith. So all of that stuff is in the background of what's going on here. We have to keep it in mind. All of these notes harmonize. The song is one of fear and faith, death and life, rising from being an outcast to familial relationship with the living God. Jesus is the one we come to in the storms of life. Our fear and our frustrations cannot override our faith because our faith is the conduit through which Jesus' life and cleanness flows to us. Without faith, he can do nothing for us. Well, that's... Wait, what? It depends on us? Oh, no. No, because right, faith is... Right, can, a, can a surgeon do surgery without a knife? No surgeon's just going to walk up to you and with his bare hands, that's disgusting, get a tumor out of you, right? But it's everything... It's all because of the surgeon's knowledge and his ability... But what, he's got to have a scalpel. And, and so this is what I'm saying. Is like it, you have to have faith. You've got to have the, the instrument in which to do the surgery on people. And the instrument is faith. The instrument is faith. The conduit is faith. Uh, there is a conduit of wholeness and fullness directly from God down to all of us here, and the conduit is faith. These stories teach important theological and practical elements of basic Christianity. I'm going to say that again. These stories teach important theological and practical elements of the Christian life. If Jesus is going to call people to himself, if they are going to come to him, he is going to have to raise them from the dead. Right? The, the demoniac, he, he heals him from a clean, or he heals him from unclean spirits and calls him out of the tombs. This woman is, is far away. She is as spiritually and covenantally dead as you can get. He essentially raises her from death to life. And then, just to make sure everyone really gets the point, in case they miss it, he goes and actually raises a girl from death. <laughs> Every time, he's doing exactly the same thing. But, it's, but he, he likes to be crystal clear. Calling the guy out of the tomb. Some of you missed it. Okay, hold on. Here is a woman who's as unclean as it gets. She can't come anywhere near a living person because she makes everything around her dead and unclean. Oh, let me make her clean. Bam. Okay, you guys still don't get it. All right. Well, there's a girl that died. Let me raise her from the death. Now do you guys get what I'm here to do? Right? And I don't care that it's a little girl because everybody else cares a great deal that it's a little girl. 
Because kids, he's already had to make the point, little kids try to come to, God, to Jesus and the disciples are like, please, kids, you're to be seen and not heard. Get out of here. Get away. And he says, hell, come, come to me. Let them come to me. That's just children in general. Now, we know when he's talking to the woman at the well that his disciples also come upon him and they think, what are you doing? What are you doing talking to a woman? We couldn't help you? Because women aren't allowed to talk to men. Uh, A Samaritan woman talking to a Jewish man? Are you out of your mind, Jesus? And later on, there's another funny story, which we're going to get to, in which a... (laughs) Syrio-Phoenician woman is, is like crawling under Jesus' table asking for crumbs, and he calls her a dog. And nobody thinks, hey, dude, how dare you talk to a woman that way? He's calling her a dog because he's playing along with the whole way that women are viewed in this culture. Right? It's just another day of the office for the disciples. Nobody gets ruffled because he says it, because it's what, they would, it's what they're thinking. It's what they're thinking. And so here's Jesus now, not just allowing this woman to get away with touching him, but he's going to go into a house and he's going to raise a little girl. Right? Why her? John the Baptist was killed. Don't we need him on the team? Why don't we go and raise him from the dead? That seems like, you know what? Actually, since you're down with raising people from the dead, let's go to the tomb of our fathers and bring David back. Man, we could use him right now, couldn't we? Why? You're going to go to this house and heal a 12-year-old girl? And, and at the time... Right? It sounds even like, why does he care? Why does he care? Even to us now. But in their day, it's, it, it's one of the most confusing things he has done so far in the story, is care about the, the death of a little girl. I've gotten ahead of myself. <laughs> Let's read the text a little bit. I'm going to read verses 21 through 24. They came to the other side of the sea. Again, the, the action just goes... Right? The guy can barely get off. Right? He, can't, he just goes from one shore to the other shore, pursued constantly by people and their needs. He goes to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Oh, I'm sorry. That's verse 1. I'm in the wrong place. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again, oh, it's like it starts exactly the same. Crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing them, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now, the last time the Jewish leaders came out to figure out who this Jesus guy was, their verdict of him was that he he was in league with the devil. Right. So the guys come down from Presbytery, to the local church to figure out what's going on, and they decide the preacher there is a heretic who's going to hell. Now, what would the what would the presbytery think if the if the elder board was like, well, we're gonna right, we're gonna keep letting the guy do his thing? This is what Jairus is doing here. The authorities have said he's of Beelzebub, and this guy is the leader of the synagogue. So what that means is that he's like the he's sort of the uh, director of it. He sets up the chairs. <laughs> he gets out the scrolls. He decides what they're going to read. He makes sure there's enough coffee and cookies for everybody. He makes sure everyone has the right hymnals. He picks the songs they're going to sing. This is his office. So it's not like he's a nobody. But he's essentially, right, he doesn't know where to go because in his grief. And, so, and he doesn't care what the authorities have said. Now, what does this guy have to lose? A great deal, actually, by associating with Jesus, somebody who the, the 
federal authorities have said is of the devil. So he has as much to, to lose as the woman with the hemorrhage. It's important to understand that. But Jesus says, okay, all right, uh, let's go. Where's the little girl? Take me there. Why does he care? Why does he care about this man? What has the synagogue done for him? What has the Jewish authorities done for him? Who cares about a dead little girl? Okay, there's serious kingdom business. <laughs> yeah, well, the dead little girl is the serious kingdom business. It's not what the disciples would think is the serious business. It's not what you or I would normally think is the serious business of heaven. Now, the crowd now is, is going to play an important... Remember, the crowd is always here. The crowd is just this big faceless mob. And, and the, the role that the crowd gets to have here is cover for the woman. The woman who needs healing doesn't want to just walk up and talk to him. We're going to cover that. She wants to touch him, but she doesn't want to... It would be weird if he's climbing out of the boat and she just runs down the shore and hugs onto him. That would be weird because the woman has a little bit more propriety than that. So what she does is she uses the cover of the crowd to get close to him. To get close to him. Now let's continue reading. Verse 25 it says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, uh, You see the crowd pressing all around you? And yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, I'm not going to read it. There's a lengthy section in Leviticus chapter 15, 25 through 27. We all know that women occasionally have a flow of blood. There's a whole list of things that you're supposed to do about that to make sure that you don't make anybody else unclean. But there's another section in the law that deals with exactly what is going on with this woman. She's having a flow of blood that is not the usual thing. It's, right? Who, right? What woman has a flow of blood for 12 years? That is unusual. It's a long time. So this woman is perpetually unclean because they, they considered to a certain extent that the woman for a week would die and they treated her, every woman, once a month like she was dead and she couldn't come anywhere near the, the clean people or the sanctuary or the synagogue or or. Right? Any, come near the people of God at all because for the flow of blood makes you unclean for seven days. Now, imagine that goes on for 12 years. She can't come near people who are trying to stay ritually clean. She can't get married. She can't have kids. She is... In a, in a culture where the only status you're going to get is through marriage and through having children, all the means for her becoming anybody in society, having any kind of normal life, having any kind of stability, having any, right? Her, she had wealth that she probably inherited from a family. She spent it all. And you'd spend it too if it, was, if it meant buying your life. Because this woman has no life. 
She is a Jew who can't come anywhere near God. She can't go to the temple. She can't go to the feasts. She can't even be around. I mean, what is she even doing in this crowd? If this doesn't work, and people realize that she's there with her uncleanness in the midst of all these Jews, it is not going to go well for her. Somebody who already has to deal with the ridicule of it, because we know from the Old Testament, women who can't get married and have kids feel shame. The society makes them feel shame. So a woman who's already been shamed as much as this woman has, imagine if it doesn't work. Imagine what she has to lose. Right? What if right before she gets out there to touch him, because Jesus is Jesus, he turns before she can actually touch him and starts talking to her. And then she has to talk to him in front of all these people. And then she has to say what's wrong with her in front of all these people. And then he's got to deny her here in front of all these people. Can you imagine the fear that she might be going through? And yet, and yet, what does she do? She's tried everything else. Says, says a little something about what, where people need to get before they're willing to just reach out and touch him. Nothing else has worked. She is as dead as a doornail. And, and nothing but terror and fear. This is a, a storm. Talk about the disciples being on the water in the midst of a storm. Imagine the storm internally and externally for this woman. And she's willing to risk it all. She's willing to lay all the chips on the table. If I could just get close enough to just touch, touch the hem of his, his garment. Right? And, and Jews wear these things called tassels, these long strings with knots on them. You know, you move like this and they kind of swing out. Right? If she can just kind of get close enough, he turns, she just gives him a little patch, he's good. Right? That's all she wants. And she's willing to go through all of this in order to get it. She knows her place. She knows she can't just walk up to him at the boat and touch him. She knows she can't just walk up and, and talk to him because women aren't allowed to do that. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a synagogue, but it continues on to this day in conservative ones. When you go to a synagogue, all the men sit down here. And there's a second story behind panels where you can't really see who's there, and that's where all the women sit. And it's still this way. If you're a Jewish woman, if you're a Hasidic woman, you don't just walk up and start talking to some guy on the street. Right? They don't wear burkas, but it's pretty close to that kind of culture. You speak to your husband, you speak to your sons, you speak to your brothers and your dad, and that's it. It doesn't get more dangerous than what this woman is doing. It's dangerous for Jairus, it's dangerous for her, and there is a ton of fear stacked up against them. And what we see here is the opposite of fear. Because when God says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, what he doesn't mean is never have a fearful thought, never have a fearful feeling. That is actually not what it means. Right? What's courage? Courage isn't the absence of fear. Right? I, I, if you watch Band of Brothers, what is, the guy says, one of the most decorated men in the entire Band of Brothers story, is this guy who says, we were all afraid all the time, but we knew what we needed to do. In the face of fear, faith is a very powerful, very strong force. And what we see it is welling up within this woman to get her to do the thing that she knows she needs to do in order to live. Now, she reaches out, she touches him, and, and this is all very bizarre. Uh, there's a ton here I, I, I don't even know what to say. How, how does power go out from Jesus just against his, it's like it doesn't have anything to do with his will. That's very strange. 
All you have to do is touch him. And, and his power goes from, right, all, faith. As long as you have faith, he doesn't even have to be willing to do it. It's not like he turns and says, okay, I'll do it. If you have faith, all you got to do is be near him. And, and his life and his fullness and his power goes from him to you. And she knows immediately, right? If you've had a flow of blood for 12 years, she knows it's over. She knows she's better. And even more bizarre than that, Jesus somehow knows power's gone out from him. It's like he has an overwhelming, abundant, never-ending flow of it. So how does he know he's missing some, right? It's like, uh, oh, I was at 100% charge. Now I'm at a 90% charge, and I lost 10% of my power. I mean, that's what it sounds like, but that's not at all what's going on. So this whole exchange is very strange. And I'm not going to spend too much more time in it, but just say, hallelujah, amen, this is weird. This is, right? This is the weird magic stuff that Jesus does. And I say magic because magic is manipulating the, uh, the nature in order to exercise power over it. That's all magic really is. And so I say magic. You're going to hear me say that a lot more in the coming days because I'm trying to get everyone used to it. <laughs> but this is a magical moment. Right? It just flows out of him. Now, can you imagine? Imagine that. Imagine all you've got to do is get near enough to touch him. Well, you're trying to imagine what that would be like, but you don't have to imagine what that would be like because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You never have to go through this. You're like, oh, I want his access. Bam. It is, it's there. I'm in him. He's in me. You, you have this connectedness with him that this woman only dreams of. I move on, though, because there's a lot I could be, be said about this. It's very strange. Moving on. He stops her, or he stops everybody. And, and the disciples, who at one point were asking questions like, oh, Jesus, you know, you explained this parable. Could you please explain it to us? You, you told this parable. I don't understand. Could you tell it to us? Well, that was back in chapter 4. And he explained it to them. But ever since then, something has happened with the disciples. They're not themselves. Because now the only questions they ask him are full of smarmy sarcasm. Oh, did you, don't you even care we're drowning? Wake up, Jesus. That's the only other question they ask. Don't you care that we're drowning, man? Now they're asking, well, Jesus, come on. Look, there's like 300 people here. Well, who touched me? Mm, I don't know. Maybe one of these 300 people. Because <laughs> it's lost a little bit in translation, but they are not speaking to him uh, with love and respect in their voice. Okay, it's very clear. They are, they are like, oh, here we go. Can we just get to the dead girl's house, please? Jesus, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you want from us. What happened to the questions where they want to know? Right? Back in chapter 4, it seems like they would have been the guys that are like, well, 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 why do you want to know, Jesus? No, they're confused by him. He's, he's totally befuddled them, and they're off their game, and they don't know what to expect. They don't know what to make of any of it, and they're just sort of frustrated with him. We're just following this guy around who just does whatever he wants. It doesn't make any sense, and, and I'm just tired, and I want to eat. Right? Because they just got off the boat. Who rowed? Jesus didn't row. <laughs> right? And just the day before, where had they been? They had a little break on the seashore, you know, next to the dead pigs. The woman comes forward and she admits what it is that she has done. She's touched him because she wanted to be healed. Right? Now, the reason that Jesus does this is, is this. Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. She has to make a public profession of faith. She has to. It's not enough just to believe in your heart. 
It's not enough to simply internally have this moment with God where you're just saved and it's this private internal thing that you never have to share with anyone. You really believe, right? Think of all the cultural stuff I've already said, and now he's doubling down. Okay, all right. You want my power? You have 10% of it? Have 10% of it. Fine. But let's really test it now. Do you believe enough to stand here in front of all these people and say what you did? To admit it and say who you think I am. And she comes in fear and trembling because now the thing that she did not want is happening. The very thing, right? Think about it. She got what she wanted and she was able to just sort of slink back and she thinks she's got away with it now. Well, I, I, I just got to go, go home now and I'll wash up and I'll be good. I can go to church. But imagine getting what you want and then still having to do the thing that you're afraid of. Well, that's the Christian life, my friends. Right? You're not like, oh, I was obedient and God answered my prayer and all the stuff that I was afraid of passes me by. No, 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 no. Sometimes when you're drowning in the ocean, to be saved from drowning, right? You're drowning in the ocean, you're praying to be saved, and God's like, I hear your prayer, here's a whale. And that's one of these moments, right? Oh, I'll save you from it, but you're still going to, in a sense, die. So she has to now do a very different kind of death. She's saved from death, but she has to die to herself. This is Christian Discipleship 101 right here. It's not just about what he gives you. It's about you, may, right? It's about this relationship. Are you willing to come to him, even regardless of your fear and your trembling, and speak out loud that you believe that he is the son of God? And what is his response? Right? At this point, there's one person that he's called brother. There's only one person who he's referred to as a family member. It's not the disciples. He hasn't even referred to God the father as his father. Remember the story where they tore the hole in the roof to get to Jesus so they could save the guy? And, he, and, and, right? and, and God tore the roof off to give him the spirit, and there was this moment where he recognized his own people. He said, brother. He calls this woman daughter because he sees. He sympathizes. You are doing the will of God. You are declaring my glory. You're making it known to all these people, and so you are my daughter. You're my daughter. And what this reveals is that God is restoring his wife. He doesn't call her wife because Jesus never looks at any individual Christian and calls them wife. That would be awkward. But he raises his daughter here and brings her into the family of God because he's restoring the bride of God. We're going to get into this. Okay? I'm running out of time, so I've got to hurry now. So just at that moment... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I laugh because, oh, look, look, Jairus' friends are coming. Your daughter died. You waited too long. And the only person who's not surprised is Jesus. Right? Imagine Jairus, right? He's, he's patiently waiting to get through this massive crowd. Jesus, I need your help. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Oh, no, he's talking to this woman. What's going on? And then all along, your impatience is justified because the girl died. Stop bothering him now, they say. Stop bothering him now is what they say. Let's go and let's read this part because it's important. I'm going to say uh, verse 34. So I find it. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, <laughs> there came from the ruler's house someone who said, 
Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went there to where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, immediately, the girl got up and began walking, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, this little girl has no faith as far as the text is concerned. Everything that Jesus does for her is on, the, on behalf of the parents. I'm just going to put that out there because I, can, I don't have time to preach about everything. There's other days to preach about on that kind of thing. But the, the little girl does not demonstrate any faith. Her parents do. So covenantal structures in the New Testament here, this kind of, this is very informative, in my opinion, that she doesn't have to exhibit any faith. But I move on. The lady still had to do the thing that she didn't want to do. Now here's Jairus. The thing that he did not want was his daughter to die, and she died. And now, in his grief, he's standing there, and he's like, yeah, I mean, why are we bothering this guy anymore? But Jesus, right, what is Jesus doing to this poor guy? No, 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 we'll, we'll keep go. We'll go down. We'll go look at her now. I had a friend who died, and she was 18. And, and you shouldn't tell these stories, I guess, but, but her father was on the job. He was a policeman. And, and what they went through to get to the morgue before him so he didn't have to see her. What is Jesus asking this man to do? Yeah, you didn't want her to die. You came to me so she wouldn't, and she is. And now let's go see her. I can't even imagine. The fear and the trembling. And, and, and Jesus is compassionate, and he knows right away. He says, no, don't fear. Have faith. And how close was she to death? How close was she to death? Well, the mourners are already there. These are professional mourners. We don't do this kind of thing in Western cultures with the medicine that we have. We don't... Professional mourners isn't something we really do too much. But the professional mourners are already there before Jesus gets there. That means they were already there. They're ready to go. This woman, this young woman was very close to death. And they're weeping and they're wailing. (laughs) But how deep is the sorrow? How deep is the sorrow when he tells them that she's only sleeping and they laugh at him? They go from weeping to laughing? That doesn't sound very sorrowful. Why is it that Jesus is the only one that cares that people dies? His friend dies, and he's about to raise him from the dead. He goes to the tomb, and he's weeping over it. He's about to raise the guy from death, and he's still crying. These are professional mourners standing outside this guy's house, and they're so sorrowful they're going to laugh at Jesus. We don't understand the power of death. We don't understand how bad it really is. Jesus does, though. Another point here is that Jesus... Goes with mom and dad and the people that he came. So six people go in to, in to see where this little girl has died. Now, six is what? Half of 12. 
Jesus has made it very clear that not everyone is going to, right? Israel isn't ready yet. Only half of us are really ready for what I'm about to reveal. Because it's true, right? He, he tells the um, parables and, and, and not everyone believes him. Some people are confounded by what he does. He doesn't bring all of his disciples. He doesn't bring the mourners. He didn't bring the crowd. He wants it to be a very small group because only a small group can even handle what he's about to do. And he does exactly what he did for Peter's mother-in-law, as if this little girl is just has a common cold or something. He walks up, he takes her by the hand, he tells her to arise, and she arises. That's it. His touch and a word. He holds her hand and says, get up. Arise. That is his power over death. And if you're Peter, you're thinking, okay, wait, he's not just here to invade the Gentile lands and drive out the legions. He's not here. I mean, that, the woman, I don't know what was going on with that, but he made her all right. He's here to fight a very different battle. And this is a moment that is, there is a turning point where everybody starts to realize a little bit that who Jesus is here to fight isn't who they want him to fight. He's there to take death itself on. The only other, the next, in, in the Gospel of Mark, the next resurrection is his own. It's the only other person that is raised from death. And at that point, he doesn't tell anyone to be quiet about it. He raises this little girl. And what does he tell her to do? Now, if, imagine for a moment if you had the power to raise someone from death. Could you, could you raise them with enough energy, with enough power in themselves that they would get up and not need a snack? Why does he raise her and say, give her some food? It's interesting. I mean, she'd had a fever. She died of the fever. Generally, when you have a fever, you don't eat. I get it. But why did, right? Why didn't he just raise her? Because this, this story isn't about this little girl. It's about this little girl. This is what, right? Your story isn't about you. It's about you, but it's about something more than that. The story is about the little girl, but it's about something more than that. He is raising Israel from the grave. He is taking back his dead and dirty wife so that they can sit at table with him. So that they could come here and sit here and eat this feast. It's, it's a metaphor. He says, lift her up and bring her to the table because when he lifts all of us out of the grave, he brings us to the table. There's a couple of directions we're going to take this. This is now the conclusion. <laughs> I know. The teaching part's over. This is the preaching part. Most people don't know this, but God is a divorcee. And that is a shocking thing to say. It's a shocking thing to hear. But if you turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 or 8, I'll just read it for us. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, this is one of the last kings of Judah, have you seen what she did? The faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a de decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. If you go to chapter 16 of Ezekiel, it's called the God's faithless bride. Because God loved and cared for Israel like a husband cares for a bride. People think that Jesus just made this metaphor up when he came in the flesh. But all he is doing is he's coming back and doing whatever he's got to do to win back his estranged wife, the people of God. 
There is a ton there. But that is what the story is about. The daughters of Zion are, are Israel, the bride of God. And he says, if you read the, nobody, right? Zephaniah. Anybody here read Zephaniah really? Habakkuk. Whew. I just had to go through Jeremiah for my ortho, or, or, ordination prep. And yeah, there's a reason I hadn't read it in a while. Because you're like, I can't even keep track of who all these nations are that he's angry with. But all of those prophets come with the decree of divorce. God is done with you because you're a whore, and, and, and this is the only reason you can legitimately get divorced, and so God doesn't want anything to do with you. You're done. Puts you away. But, but, we all know who we're talking about. It's God. So he's not going to just leave you that way. He's going to come back, and he's going to win you back at whatever cost to him at whatever cost to you. And so all of this language about Jesus, right, what, what is the church referred to? His body, but also the bride of Christ. And it's the same bride as, as the bride of God in the Old Testament. So what this story is really about is husbandry. This is a story about how to be a good husband. Because even for a time, if you have to excommunicate somebody, if you've got to put a woman away because she's a whore, you continue to pursue her. You continue to win her over because that's what headship does. Biblical masculinity is this. The sacrifice of bodily strength for goodness. Right? We were born men with big, broad shoulders because we carry heavy things. <laughs> right? I am this size because look at the load i got to carry. Right? I always wondered why I was so big and clunky. And then I got married, and then I had six kids. And then, because God has a sense of humor, he added a church to it. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He is pursuing, he is raising, he is washing, he is cleansing these two women, and it's a metaphor for the entire church. Part of what is going on with Jesus is subversive, subversiveness. He comes to a culture that's supposed to be biblical. And he comes, and what does he find? Does he find a culture that is male-led? No. He finds a culture that's male-dominated. Do you know the difference? <laughs> we say yes, but be careful when you say that quickly. Here we are, Christians. Now, do we live in a culture that's male-led or male-dominated? Mary said in her song that he's going to lift the low things and he's going to knock down the high things. He's going to bring balance to the force. No, I'm sorry. Bring balance to his society. In him, there's neither free nor slave, man nor woman. In him, all the women who become believers are sons. And what that means is that it's about being an heir, not about being a male. So you're sitting there, sons and daughters of the living God. Now, here, here's the question. How do you know that this is a male-dominated culture and not a male-led culture? Does this woman, is she afraid to speak in public? Here's my question, then. If we had a church meal right after the service, right here, right now in this room, and I asked any of the women in this room to, be, to say the prayer over the food, would that be awkward? You bet your butt it would be. And that is because, are we a male-led culture or a male-dominated culture? Here's another one. Titus 2 says, older ladies, teach the younger ladies how to be lovers of husbands and children. 
Now that goes on. I'm not going to say that it doesn't. But are, are, do those, do the older women in this church feel a sense of, right, so much confidence in Christ, so much unity, that they're so used to talking about spiritual things that it, it's easy to go and talk to the younger women about being lovers of children and lovers of husbands because they're used to talking about that kind of thing all the time. No, right? Fear. Fear grips us. Right? And I, I want to go back. I'm not talking about inviting one of the ladies up. Anne-Marie is not going to come up here and preach next week. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about a communal meal. If I had your family over to my house and I asked your wife to say the grace over the meal, that would be awkward. Now, in our age, feminism, feminism, the idea about it, is that it frees men from any kind of responsibility. You don't have to be the breadwinner because a girl who goes off to work. You don't got to get married because that's an institution of slavery. We don't have to have kids. We just murder them. Right? And all the guys with man buns who like to get their nails done can't stop giggling because feminism worked out exactly the way that they wanted. It's relieved men from having to have any responsibility. And the church's response, right, conservative ones, is to have a male-dominated culture and not a male-led one. Biblical masculinity is the sacrifice of bodily strength for goodness. When is the last time your daughter prayed? When's the last time your wife prayed? When's the last time your wife was the one who read the Bible out loud? When's the last time you read a book about being a good husband? Right? This went a direction that nobody was expecting, and this is why I didn't want to do it. Because Jesus is coming here, and he's lifting up the women. Because the women had been oppressed. And our response to feminism in the world that it is, is to oppress women. Now, I'm not, right? My wife doesn't wear a burqa. She doesn't wear a burqa. But, but do I know the difference between male-led and male-dominated? Now, now, some of us have sold out. We just follow our wives around, clinging onto the apron strings like a five-year-old. It's true. That's us sometimes, right, guys? It is. Mama, can I just have a cookie? Mama. Dear sweet mama. But the rest of us, right, what happens? We're blustering, machismo-filled, orgasm-chasing, spiritual eunuchs. And that's our answer to feminism. So if Jesus came back now into this culture, right here in this church, I'm not talking about outside here, is it male-led or male-dominated? Now, those of you who don't want it to be male-led, that's a problem that we need to deal with. Those of you who are like, yeah, male-led, I'm in charge, and so I'm going to start telling everybody what to do. Yeah, that's not male-led. That's male-dominated. Imagine a home. This is my last example. Here's a home, and the the table is up against the, the table and dining room. There's a wall on one side and the kitchen on the other side. Now imagine the, all the boys sit on the side where the wall is so that the girls can sit on the side where the kitchen is in case their brothers need anything. And that's the, only, right, that's the only way that this whole thing plays out in any kind of instruction. Do your boys in your home have special status because they're boys? How many of you guys look down the street at the Islamic church and you're like, you know what, those guys know how to throw their weight around? I'm, I'm, it's an honest question. Do you know the difference between male-led and male-dominated? Jesus came to free. His law sets people free. He came to raise up the ladies because he's bringing his whole church back to us. Man, woman, boy, girl, adult, child, he's bringing us all back. And what, what was he willing to do? He was willing to die to do it. 
Now, and, right? And so what you do now, if you want a male-led culture, is you go out and you die for others. That's what it means. Sacrificing bodily strength for goodness. The Lord God came to, to shatter the culture of his day. Shatter it because it was wicked and vile. And what we are here to do is to go out and to shatter the wicked and vile culture of this world. Right? Let's just kill all the babies. Let's just send all the women off to work. They, we're, we're, they're in bondage and can't pursue the thing that God actually made them to do. And our reaction to that is like, okay, well, that's all we're going to make them do. <laughs> they won't let them have babies, and they won't let them, right? they won't let them stay home. Well, they're going to stay home, and they're going to have babies, and I don't want to hear anything else about it. And that's our reaction, boys. Because I can't say men. This is what we need to get... It's straight. Why is Mike so angry right now? <laughs> Why is he so intense and passionate about this? It's because we've sold out and we have a male-dominated culture. And Jesus is the only way to set it right. He's the only one that can free the oppressed. He's the only one that can set things back in order. And, and so when, when we go to him, it's not just about feeling better. It's not just... There is so much wrong with us and with this world, and we need to open our eyes a little wider and take in a little more and think a little more deeply about these things. When's the last time your wife prayed? In your own home. When's the last time she read the Bible out loud in your own home? When's the last time that she, in any way, shape, or form, exercised her God-given authority as your wife over you? Only you can answer those questions. And, and, And the only way out is Jesus. He is the one who comes and sets us free. He is the one who comes and sets things right. And if you want to set things right, go to him. Right? What kind of husband was he? What kind of father is God? What, what does it say here in this world? He cares. He cares about the smallest and the most pathetic and the dirtiest and the unclean. And he's willing to sacrifice bodily strength for goodness. Let us do the same. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the harsh um, truth that uh, often hurts us to hear. I pray, Lord God, that as we would go from here, that we would seek Christ, that we would pursue him, that we would pursue godliness and masculinity and imitate him and and as we love our wives and raise our children and engage with culture lord god we are selfish and we are sinful and we are men who are so focused on ourselves and our own desires lord god that we dominate and and we do not lead we abdicate and we do not lead and i pray lord god that just just as you made that woman with a hemorrhage clean just as you raised that little girl from the death, that you would raise us and cleanse us so that we may go and do your will, that we may glorify you, and that we may proclaim, confess, that you are Lord and not us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.